0: Chapter Twenty of Hushed Up by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty, The Stranger in the Rue de Rivoli. From Scarborough we had gone up to the Highlands, spending a fortnight at Grandtown, a week at Blair Atoll, returning south through Calendar and Arosachs. One of the most glorious autumns I had ever spent. Ours was now a peaceful, uneventful life, careless of the morrow, and filled with perfect love and concord. I adored my young, beautiful wife, and I envied no man. I had crushed down all feelings of misgivings that had hitherto so often arisen within me, for I felt confident in Sylvia's affection. She lived only for me, possessing me body and soul. Not a pair in the whole of England loved each other with a truer or more fervent passion. Our ideas were identical, and certainly I could not have chosen a wife more fitted for me, even though she rested beneath such a dark cloud of suspicion. I suppose some who read this plain statement of fact will declare me to have been a fool, but to such I would reply that in your hearts the flame of real love has never yet burned." You may have experienced what you have fondly believed to have been love, a faint flame that has perhaps flickered for a time and dying out has long been forgotten. Only if you have really loved a woman, loved her with that all-consuming passion that arises within a man once in his whole lifetime when he meets his affinity, can you understand why I made Sylvia my wife. I had the car brought up to meet us in Perth, and with it Sylvia and I had explored all the remotest beauties of the highlands. We ran up as far north as Inverest, and around Auban, delighting in all the beauties of the heather-clad fields, the wild moors, the autumn-tinted glades, and the broad, unruffled lochs. Afterwards we went round the Trossachs and motored back to London through Carlisle, the lakes, North Wales, and the Valley of Wye, the most charming of all motor-runs in England afterwards sylvia wanted to do some shopping and we went over to paris for ten days there while at the maurice her father who chanced to be passing through paris on his way from brussels to lyon came unexpectedly one evening and dined with us in her private salon hennington was just as elegant and epicurean as ever he delighted in the dinner set before him the hotel of course being noted for its cooking that evening we were a merry trio i had not seen my father-in-law since the morning of our marriage when i had called and found him confined to his bed therefore we had both a lot to relate to him regarding our travels i too have been moving about incessantly he remarked as he poised his wine-glass in his hand regarding the colour of its contents i was in petersburg 3 weeks ago i'm interested in some telegraph construction works there We've just secured a big government contract to lay a new line across Siberia. I've written to you half a dozen times, remarked his daughter, but you never replied. I've never had your letters, child, he said. Where did you address them? Two I sent to the Travelers Club here, another I sent to the Hotel de France in Petersburg. Ah, I was at the Europe, he laughed. I found their cooking better. Their sterlet is even better than the Hermitage at Moscow. Jules the chef was at Kubat in the Nevsky for years Pennington always gauged a hotel by the excellence of its chef he told us of tiny obscure places in Italy which he knew where the rooms were carpetless and comfortless but where the cooking could vie with the Savoy or Carlton in London he mentioned the Giappone in leghorn the de d'Oro in Lucca and the Vapore in Venice of all three of which I had had experience and I fully corroborated what he said. He was a man who ate his strawberries with a quarter of a liqueur glass of maraschino thrown over them and a slight addition of pepper, and he always mixed his salads himself. Perhaps you think me very whimsical, he laughed across the table, but really good cooking makes so much difference to life. I told him that as an Englishman I preferred plainly cooked food which is usually heavy and indigestible i fear he declared what now could be more indigestible than our english roast beef and plum pudding eh my own thoughts were however running in an entirely different channel and when presently sylvia who looked a delightful picture in ivory chiffon and wearing the diamond necklet i had given her as one of her wedding presents rose and left us to our cigars i said suddenly i say pennington do you happen to know a stout gray-bearded frenchman who wears gold-rimmed glasses a man named pierre delon delon he repeated no i don't recollect the name i saw him in manchester i exclaimed he was at the midland and said he knew you and also sylvia in manchester was he at the midland while i was there yes he was dressed in black with a silk hat and wore on his finger a great amethyst ring a rather vulgar-looking ornament pennington's lips were instantly pressed together ah he exclaimed almost with a start i think i know who you mean his beard is pointed and his eyes rather small and shining he has the air of a bon vivant and speaks english extremely well he wears the amethyst on the little finger of his left hand exactly and to you he called himself pierre delon eh yes what is his real name then who knows i've heard that he uses half a dozen different aliases replied my father-in-law then you know him well not very well was pennington's response in a rather strange voice i thought did he say anything regarding myself only that he had seen you in manchester when did you see him last well i said as a matter of fact he met me in london the same night and i fancy i have caught sight of him twice since the first occasion was a fortnight ago in Prince's Street, Edinburgh, when I saw him coming forth from the North British Hotel with another man, also a foreigner. They turned up Prince's Street and then descended the steps to the station before I could approach sufficiently close. I was walking with Sylvia, so could not well hasten after them. The second occasion was yesterday, when I believe I saw him in a taxi passing us as we drove out to tea at Ermenholm Via. "'Did he see you?' asked Pennington quickly. "'I think so. I fancy he recognized me.' "'Did Sylvia see him?' he asked almost breathlessly. "'No.' "'Ah!' and he seemed to breathe again more freely. "'Apparently he is not a very great friend of yours,' I ventured to remark. "'No, he isn't. And if I were you, Biddulph, I would avoid him like the plague. "'He is not the kind of person desirable as a friend. You understand?' "'I gathered from his conversation that he was something of an adventurer,' I said. "'That's just it. Myself I always avoid him,' he replied. Then he turned the conversation into a different channel. He congratulated me upon our marriage, and told me how Sylvia, when they had been alone together for a few moments before dinner, had declared herself supremely happy.' I ONLY HOPE THAT NOTHING MAY OCCUR TO MAR YOUR PLEASANT LIVES, MY DEAR FELLOW, HE SAID, SLOWLY KNOCKING THE ASH FROM HIS CIGAR. IN THE married STATE ONE NEVER KNOWS WHAT ADVERSITY OR PROSPERITY LIES BEFORE ONE. I HOPE I SHALL MEET WITH NO ADVERSITY, I SAID. I HOPE NOT FOR Sylvia's SAKE, HE DECLARED. WHAT IS FOR Sylvia's SAKE? ASKED A CHEERY VOICE, AND AS WE BOTH LOOKED UP IN SURPRISE, we found that she had re-entered noiselessly, and was standing laughing mischievously by the open door. It is so dull being alone that I ventured to come back. I don't mind the smoke, in the least. Why, of course, darling, I cried, jumping from my chair and pulling forward an armchair for her. I saw that it was a bright night outside, and that the autos with their sparkling lights like shooting stars were passing and repassing with honking horns up and down the Rue des Rivoli. For a moment she stood at my side by the window, looking down into the broad thoroughfare before. Then a second later she suddenly cried, "'Why, look, Owen, do you see that man with a short dark overcoat standing under the lamp over there? I've seen him several times to-day. Do you know? He seems to be watching us.' "'Watching you?' cried her father, starting to his feet and joining us. The long wooden sun-shutters were closed, so on opening the windows which led to the balcony we could see between the slats without being observed from outside i looked at the spot indicated by my wife and then saw on the other side of the way a youngish-looking man idly smoking a cigarette and gazing in the direction of the place de la concorde as though expecting someone. i could not distinguish his features yet i saw that he wore brown boots and that the cut of his clothes and the shape of his hat were English. "'Where have I seen him before?' I asked of her. "'I first met him when I came out of Letherricks this morning. Then again, when we lunched at the Bonnet, he was standing at the corner of the Rue de Paix and the Rue de Neu. He followed us in the Rue Royale later on.' "'And now he seems to have mounted guard outside, eh?' I remarked, somewhat puzzled. "'Why did you not tell me this before?' i did not wish to cause you any anxiety owen was her simple reply while her father asked do you know the fellow ever seen him before sylvia never in my life she declared it's rather curious isn't it very i said and as we all three watched we saw him move away a short distance and join a taller man who came from the direction he had been looking for a few moments they conversed then the newcomer crossed the road towards us and was lost to sight in a few seconds a ragged old man a crippled approached the mysterious watcher with difficulty and said something to him as he passed that cripple is in the business cried pennington who had been narrowly watching he's keeping observation and has told him something some deep game is being played here Biddulph. i wonder why they are watching i asked somewhat apprehensive of the coming evil that had been so long predicted father and daughter exchanged curious glances. It seemed to me as though a startling truth had dawned upon them both. I stood by in silence. "'It is certainly distinctly unpleasant to be watched like this, providing, of course, that Sylvia has not made a mistake,' Pennington said. "'I have made no mistake,' she declared quickly. "'I've been much worried about it all day, but did not like to arouse Owen's suspicions.' and I saw by her face that she was in dead earnest. At the same moment, however, a light tap was heard upon the door, and a waiter opened it, bowing as he announced, "'Monsieur Pierre Delon, to see Monsieur Bidolphe!' "'Great heavens, Sylvia!' cried Pennington, standing pale-faced and open-mouthed. "'It's Gouturne. He must not discover that I am in Paris.' Then, turning to me in fear, he implored, "'Save me from this meeting, Bidolphe. Save me, if you value your wife's honor, I beg of you. I'll explain all afterwards. Only save me! End of chapter twenty. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's audiobooks dot com.